Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, and this is a podcast about what's in the air and up for discussion at the ninth global Peter Drucker Forum. The forum's inspired by the great management thinker, the late Professor Peter Drucker. It takes place in Vienna in November. And this year's theme is Growth and Inclusive Prosperity. With me is one of the forum's main speakers, Thomas Widell Widelsborg. Originally from Denmark, he's an expert on innovation and the way many companies try to do it the wrong way. He's co-author of the book Innovation as Usual, and that's important. We'll come to the usuality of innovation in a minute. He's working on a new project trying to improve the way that the world goes about solving its problems. Thomas Widell, innovation is now a cult pursuit of almost every established business, and it's taken for granted, of course, by startups. But many people don't know really what it is or how to go about it, do they? Generally, it's been a very popular topic for a long time now. Uh, it's been recognized, well, since the days of Peter Drucker and earlier. I would say that parts of the challenge companies have solved well in terms of, if you're looking at the whole R&D space, we have fairly strong tools for that. What I would argue is more problematic is the challenge of trying to drive innovation outside those specialized units, going in and saying, well, if you have a normal job, if you will, inside an organization, how do we manage to create new value as part of that when there's a lot of other things going on at the same time? Most companies, they're getting some things right. But if you ask the average employee in a, in a big company, I think they would say, well, we, we struggle with innovation. There's a very, if you will, black and white view of, you know, either you're out there and doing the whole brand new thing or you're a dinosaur. And I would argue there is an in-between space where you can actually, through more daily innovation, if you will, you can create the capital and the resources that you need in order to make huge new bets. That part, I find, is, is an overlooked challenge by many. And that's the as-usual part of innovation, is it? Really going in and figuring out how do I do this, not as a one-off event, but as part of what we do on a recurring basis. Is innovation different now than it was, say, uh, 40 years ago in the mass production era, the 20th century, now disrupted by, in a big way by digital now? Uh, is that a, a threshold for innovation? I would say it has become more ubiquitous. It used to be so that in the start of the 1900s, innovation was in an R&D lab. Uh, then go to the middle of the century and you start seeing it in manufacturing in different places, but still fairly localized within the organization. Where I'd say we are now is there's, there's a demand for innovation for every part of the organization. Whether you work in finance or in human resources or wherever, there's a demand for how do we create value in new ways. And the relationship between the customer or the outside world and the corporation or the individual leaders of corporations, that's quite an important connection which is often ignored, isn't it? I would say one of the surprising things that can actually work well is when you connect people, not necessarily only to the customer, but just internally inside the corporation. Because quite often there are people inside your own company that actually has pieces of the puzzle that can you manage to bring them together across silos, be that a lunch break thing or whatever, you tend to see better results as well. Does it need a roving innovation sort of officer or specialist to do this sort of marriage making? I would say it helps. I see it as a healthy sign when companies start appointing in a chief innovations officers and similar. 
in and of itself is not enough, there is a risk that you take a very isolationist approach to innovation. You know, you, you create that special innovation department and they may get some interesting ideas, but typically they have a very hard time getting the rest of the business on board. Uh, so I would say it depends on the focus that the chief innovation officer has. Let's move on to the other thing you do, which is helping the world solve its problems by asking the right questions. That's a really big issue, particularly in the context of inclusive prosperity. We're seeing a lot of reactions to the way the world has gone over the last 20 or 30 years. Capitalism is looking a little bit threadbare, perhaps. What sort of questions ought we to be asking? What fascinates me the most about it is that the core idea that we have to ask the right questions, we have to get better at figuring out what the right problems to solve are, well, that's an old idea. It's been around for ages. And yet, when you look at the state of organizations today, we are still quite bad at it. I did a survey of 106 uh, C-suite people, and they said basically 85% of them said this is something in our organization we are bad at, diagnosing the right problems, and that costs us a lot of money. So what struck me really with this was to say it's not enough to say, oh, we have to ask the right questions. It's actually about figuring out how do we do that? How can we teach people to do it. And that, in my mind, has a huge impact on many of the issues we're trying to solve with the forum and and elsewhere. If an organization, a company, a country is successful, then that success is a kind of breeder of, in the end, failure, isn't it? Because you're obviously not going to question your success while it's happening, Hmm. not keenly and um, disruptively, are you? There is natural enough a tendency not to do that. In a sense, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think the key thing here is this is not something you do once. It is something you build as a, it's almost a habit of mind for the organization to constantly go in and say, wait, are there new angles in this issue we're seeing? Are there new problems we can solve for the customer? I would say it's almost the, the cognitive counterpoint of rapid prototyping. There, there is this tendency to go out and quickly try something and go back, quickly try something again. I would argue the same thing has to be done from an analytical perspective and saying, what's going on here? Is there a new way of seeing the problems that we're trying to deal with? Then you go forth and try something. Then you step back again and say, wait, what did we learn? What do we need to rethink about our assumptions of the people we're trying to help? For a long time, you don't have a problem, and then suddenly you do have a problem because, for example, for Kodak, digital comes along, mm. and they've been a filmmaker so wonderfully successfully, so owning the whole marketplace for yeah. decades that looking for digital happening before it happened, and indeed they also invented the digital camera, come to think of it. Um, But timing in all this is such an important component. And I think that's where the role of experimentation comes in, in terms of prior to uh, where we Kodak in an alternate reality, prior to them betting the farm on a new direction, could they at least have started developing things in the digital space? The story that I found fascinating, a new one that I wanted to share, was from the uh, shelter dog space. Dogs in shelters, that's admittedly not the world's biggest problem. But yet I found it quite fascinating because it's almost a microcosm of some of the things I expect we'll be discussing at the forum. There are, in the U.S., three million dogs put into shelters every year. Only half of them manage to find a new home. And interestingly enough, if you go into a shelter to try to adopt a dog, that can actually be hard. You have to fill out a long form. They might actually come to your home and want to see your kids play with the dog in order to, well, well, are you worthy of getting a dog? Now, that's interesting because these dogs that don't get adopted, they 
don't get sent to a farm to merrily gamble about on, on a meadow. They get put down, do they? They get put down. They get euthanized. And what struck me as so interesting is when I started looking into why is this the case? Why, why are there these barriers to adoption? Well, there is a widespread idea in the space of the bad owner. The idea that there are some people who will mistreat their dogs who should never have had a dog in the first place. Where did that come from? Well, there's a very interesting industry statistic, which is that of the dogs that come into shelters, 30% are what's called owner surrenders, meaning it is the family, the owners of the dog, that deliberately hands it over. Now, if you work in this space, you are probably white, you are affluent, you evidently love dogs, and you have very limited understanding of why somebody would choose to hand over their dog to a shelter knowing full well that it might never exit that shelter. That was one of the core sources of why do people think this, this widespread idea of the bad owner that we have to protect the dogs against. There's a woman in L.A., Lori Weiss, who challenged that. She went out, and this is a long-standing idea in the space. She actually started figuring out what was going on. Why do people hand over their dogs? And what she figured out was, for the vast majority of them, it wasn't a people problem. It was a financial problem. These were families that they may have taken good care of the dog for five years or more, but they were in such a dire financial state that if a landlord of a new building they were moving into suddenly demanded $100 a deposit, they were not capable of getting that money. So the dog is surrendered. And so the dog is surrendered. And once she realized that, she realized there might be a better way of spending our funds. In this. Instead of trying to just pay for dogs in a shelter, could we actually help the dog stay with its first family, going in and putting down a deposit directly with the landlord? Through doing that, she managed to save initially at her own the own shelter the shelter she worked with save hundreds of extra dogs and has they've consistently now driven down the cost of helping an animal from $85 to $60 through figuring out basically a new problem to solve and it runs kind of counter to the idea you're running a dog shelter you're running a dog's not shelter right and there you can see how in an industry once you're you're in it you get a little bit caught in the original problem you're put into the world to solve because of course if you're a shelter well you get dogs in and then you help them hopefully move on this kept dogs out of the shelter space entirely. Now, I can see that uh, this sort of approach is wonderful for details, for resolving particular problems, but what the forum has on its plate is a much larger problem, prosperity and inclusive prosperity and the future of the world, and uh, there's a lot of discontent out there. Can you really apply these detailed sort of insights to great big problems or redefining great big problems? I would argue yes. I think one of the core insights from the shelter story, for instance, is the need to take the time to understand what the people you're trying to help, what are, they, what are their real motivations, why do they do what they do. When you look at, uh, let's take an example, the Brazil program, Balsa Familia, that uh, Lula, when, when he was president there, instigated. They're very interesting, similar thing. Like in the old days, what they used to do to support poor families, they tried to give them goods, the type of help where you at the same time try to protect the poor from their own worst impulses. Now, Lula, with his background, he challenged that and he said, actually, we, we generally don't need to do that if we can just give people money. And there were details that you needed to get right with that program. One of the insights was, for instance, it's a good idea to give the money to the mother in the family instead of the father. But the fundamental idea here, again, applies that sometimes we need to go in and, and challenge some of the 
preconception we have around how do we best help people in order to find more efficient ways of doing it. And the history of the Balsa Familia program, I think, has very clearly demonstrated that that was a good approach. Well, people have been talking about and worrying about the provision, a national provision of a basic income for a long time now. Now that talk is getting sort of sharper and uh, more concentrated because of the, the rise of the robots, this threat that jobs are going to be taken away wholesale by, by the robots. So uh, maybe we have to start thinking in that wider way. I believe that's a necessity. There has been an evolution in how people approach this from initially trying to like, deny that it was happening, the automatization of society, to trying to delay it and kind of like, how do we protect our jobs? And I think we're now at a point where the question is, this is going to happen. What do we then do? How can we, for instance, universal basic income is one of the ideas uh, that kind of out there. Another interesting discussion, and I don't have the answer to this, is but what is the exact problem with inequality? Is it necessarily the existence of inequality? Is it the perception of inequality? Or is it even that it's unfair in the sense that, well, Elon Musk has a lot more money on his bank account than I have on mine. I don't find that unfair because I know he has, you know, I know his story. I know he has done a lot to, in a sense, deserve that. Whereas if I look at other people or if you look at the financial world has been a traditional target of ire, maybe that's part of it, that there's not that, uh, wait, well, there's inequality, but is it a fair inequality? Did these people deserve it or not? I'm not sure there's a solution anywhere there, but I'm still wondering if there are new thoughts that can't be gained from looking closer at what, why is this a problem what, and how can we potentially rethink what's going on? Who's going to do that rethinking? Not politicians, not academics, uh, not people involved in the world of business, maybe philosophers, but the voice of philosophy in society is not that large these days. What sort of people do we need to rethink quite wholesale society? I would argue all of them. I think it is a mistake to try to hand that job to somebody high in an ivory tower or whatever. One of the, the aims I have with this, this work of mine around reframing is how do we spread it? In, instead of making a few people really good at it, how can we take this ability to rethink problems and make that a, a much more widespread? How can we upgrade the world's ability to solve problems? That, that's really what I'm trying to do with my current work. Yeah, but we still vote, don't we, for once every five years or something and then hope the politicians will solve our problems for us. That taking responsibility is not very widespread, is it? I would almost go back in history and look at when we have previously managed to overcome big challenges, how has that happened? And the answer, I think, is a widespread collaboration uh, between those. The, the, maybe this is not the best example, but when you're looking at the moon landing... Well, John F. Kennedy got up, was it in 61 or thereabouts, and announced, we are going to the moon. But that was only the start of it. The real story of the moon landing is really the massive effort that the U.S. put into making that happen over a decade-long period of time, collaborations between governments, private contractors, and all of that. And finally, they did make it happen. That sort of widespread collaboration around problems, I think, is necessary to solve them. But that's a bad example in that it wasn't just effort, it was also a lot of money, wasn't it? And that is the secret sauce, isn't it? Absolutely. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was a scarily high percentage of of, uh, the US GDP that went to that project. And you had to argue that it wasn't about re 
formulating society. It was about the spin-offs that could be got from going to the moon. That's the way you sell this to a sort of business-minded populace, isn't it? This is an interesting point in and of itself. There's an argument for climate change, evidently, but that is a long-term argument. And I think that the challenge for climate change, in part, is to find the short-term reasoning that makes companies agree, or, or to create it politically, if you will, How do you do that? How do you sell a viable, a worthy long-term project in a way so it appeals to short-term interests? That long-term perspective is very difficult to put to people, isn't it? I would say I know very few examples where the pure long-term perspective has really managed to, to power through. With climate change, I think you see some recognition of it now. Have people or companies started to change their behaviors? Well, that may in part be more a mix of regulation, That has been enacted for politically, and some public, because there now is a great public awareness of the need to be more ecological, more climate-friendly, uh, companies, to some extent, do start changing their behavior. Whether it's mostly window dressing, whether it's profound, that's a different question, but at least it's moving in that direction. Are you, about these big issues that uh, we're going to be discussing at the forum, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Innovation means you, you're up for change, but are people going to do it? You've portrayed a world where a lot of companies, maybe a lot of nations, are mm. not really up for change. I am a fundamental optimist. That's more based on the, if you will, the historical evidence, where when, despite the terrors that we, we read about every day in the newspaper, when you look at the development over the last hundred years or more, humanity has done very well. We are on a general path of progress. If you ask me what's my biggest concern, social inequality is one of them. The AI question is another one. Artificial intelligence, that may be more of a longer-term thing, but I think there's profound questions there. If, uh, is it wait but why or Elon Musk, who's kind of gone? There's a lot of people making that argument, and I think there's... And a lot of great big banks of data being accumulated by private corporations, which will have more, more power over that stuff and over the way we live our lives, or at least more potential power than certainly governments. That's where I would distinguish between temporary and existential threat. You could argue the AI threat, however far-fetched, if that comes true, is probably an existential threat. Well, if companies start accruing more and more information, yes, that's a problem, but it's a fixable problem. And it's one that in 50 years from now, when we look back, we'll probably say, okay, well, we took a while, but we got it right. So not perfectly, but generally we find solutions to those types of problems in given time. Do we? Because we are lured into giving up our data by the search engines, by the online shoppers. And as a result, we, it is said, are training their computers to make more and their artificial intelligence to make more and more use of the data we submit on an hourly or minute-by-minute -minute basis. So there's a bargain. We use them and then they start using us. That's absolutely true. And there's both good and bad things about that. I think it's not necessarily a bad thing that companies get better at, you know, figuring out what we need and so they can better deliver to those servers. It is a problem when it comes to civil rights, to privacy issues and so on. And hopefully that, that's a challenge that we will eventually either regulate or, or find our way to at least partially deal with to make it better. I, I don't think there's a full solution there, but that's not the problem I worry about the most. We need to start asking a lot of the right questions, though, and we're not doing that yet, are we? Partially, maybe, but uh, I think we need to do more in general about, instead of defaulting to solutions, falling in love with solutions, 
we need to, like, like in the story I told with the shelters, we need to go in and challenge the fundamental assumptions we're making about what's the problem we're trying to solve, what's the goal we're trying to achieve, what are the values of the people and the behaviors of the, the people we're trying to help. And is there something there we're not getting? Is there something there we can do better? Many thanks, Thomas. Thomas Weddle Weddlesburg, who will be speaking at the Global Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.